Hey there, welcome to the What Connects podcast, where we explore human connection with people from Saskatchewan. Today we're chatting with Christian Hebert about how he pivoted from med school to become an accountant and how it started him on the path of leading one of the most progressive family farms of the province. Let's get growing. All right, thanks for joining us for another episode of the What Connects Us podcast. My name is Mason Gardner, and today we're chatting with someone whose risk to change swim lanes paid off in such a big way. We're chatting with Christian Hebert, who is one of the province's most recognizable egg producers. Christian has such an interesting story of reinvention, as his path has taken him through med school, to becoming an accountant, to now leading one of the most progressive family farms in Saskatchewan. We'll chat about how he's navigated that journey, and he'll share with us how he's been able to quickly scale his business, some invaluable perspective he's gained along the way, what keeps him up at night, and what it means to him to just be a farmer. This is some of the most sound and relatable advice we've ever heard on the podcast, and the takeaways, I promise you, are so incredibly universal. Hebert Grain Ventures breaks so many stereotypes about how lots of people assume a family farm is run, and Christian is going to describe how he manages all of the things HGV has on the go while still finding time to prioritize being present for his family. Whether you run a farming operation of your own or you've never even stepped foot in a canola field, I promise you, you'll take something away from this interview. In his own words, Christian has a lot of agricultural puzzles on the go. So let's lay down the first piece of this conversation and let's get it going. What connects us to Christian? Let's find out. Christian Hebert, welcome to the podcast. Hey Mason, thanks for uh, thanks for having me in. Yeah, absolutely. Before we start every podcast, I like to reach out to this person's loved ones to get some dirt on them. And you need to run for office because the amount of times I've reached out to somebody and like, just give me some dirt on Christian just to, just to break the ice a little bit. They would reply with the most complimentary things I've ever seen. Like people speak very highly of you. Like if you ever need a eulogy or something, I have like a four page document from Val Minty that just speaks your praises that is ready for print if you need it. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of tricking people. I might be good <laughs> at sa- better at sales than I think, but you know, I think it, it goes down the path of probably what we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you got to be pretty real. Oh, right? yeah. And, and I'm too busy to remember things twice, so I better tell the truth the first time. Yeah, so true. And uh, so, you know, the people that you surround yourself tend to tend to believe in what you're saying and want to be around it and are comfortable enough to tell you when they don't, oh, which yeah. then doesn't leave too many rocks unturned. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, I'm, I was looking for things like um, embarrassing moments, something like that that I could just, like, like, poke fun at you at. And Val's like did you know that he started a bailing company when he was raising money for university? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think uh, you'd probably, probably best to ask my eight and 10 year old for the stories. They're the, <laughs> they're the ones that get to see me mad when the garbage doesn't go out or, sure. or coaching sports. Right. So yeah. there's maybe some stuff that goes on in dressing rooms that would yeah. be good icebreakers. Yeah. Yeah. Next time, next yeah. time, next time. You're on. All right. Let's jump in with a quick introduction. So give me a little bit of background on who you are and how it relates to your story. Yeah, so I'm Christian Hebert from southeast Saskatchewan, a little town by the name of Fairlight, actually. I think there's maybe 24 people left in Fairlight. Okay. We call Mooseman home. That's our, our main business center, and the farm surrounds Mooseman. And yeah, so I started out kind of same as every other rural kid. I grew up on a small farm. As Val said, I did a lot of bailing and custom spraying and stuff like that to pay for college. But <clears throat> I uh, I was following a hockey dream and, and broke my wrist pretty bad, so mm-hmm. ended up in college at U of S, took, uh, took accounting and finance. To be honest, I was I was going to take agronomy after my first year because I, I took pre-med, wrote the test, and said, what the hell am I doing, to sure. be honest? It, it wasn't my style. And yep. 
And my dad said, you know, the business side of farming is, is starting to make me a bit nervous mm-hmm. and, and I don't always enjoy it. And it's the most important part. He was always very focused on it, that it was very important. But mm-hmm. um, so I took business, came home and, and did a bunch of work with Myers North Penny. And I say I'm a recovering accountant because I do have my CPA. I maybe yeah. don't uh, maybe don't fit the bill too often. But yeah. Yeah. And then really it was the business side that drove me back to, to come home and take over the family farm. Right. And, and that's really, I'm, I'm addicted to the game of business. Yeah. Uh, farming just happens to be the niche of business that, that we seem to be able to find some success at. And, 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 you know, I have a couple pretty lofty goals, but I mean, most of my goals are driven around my kids, right? I, I want to give the kids the opportunity to go to a school like Harvard. Cause you know, we're from Fairlight. We're not supposed to get that opportunity. Right. And, but at the same time, you know, as any small business owner, it's my responsibility to build a business cool enough that, you know, if they if they graduate top of the class at Harvard and get a job offer from Goldman Sachs and Facebook, uh, I better make sure my business is cool enough to be on the table. Yeah. They, in no way do they have to take it over, uh, nor nor do they want to maybe. Yeah. But I do feel it's my responsibility to have something cool enough that it's exciting enough to look at. And totally. I could keep going on in an introduction awesome. forever, but we'll probably get through most of it. Absolutely. So let's back up. What was Christian like in high school? You said that you played hockey. Obviously you would have had pretty good grades if you were going to pre-med. What was that like? Yeah, I was a, I was decent in school. I uh, I had pretty good marks. I was on a scholarship to, to school. So that was kind of one of the original ones. I maybe wanted to go back and play hockey after a broken wrist and yep. maybe got vetoed by my parents that sure. with a broken wrist, you don't have a very good shot and mm-hmm. you've got a scholarship for your brain. So you should maybe use it. But, yeah. you know, I was also that kid that my first semester was, uh, I think I was 30% lower than I graduated with and I needed to keep over an 80 to keep my scholarship. So yeah. the the December drive in dad's truck is yeah. still a memorable one to say, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not questioning whether or not you're smart, but I may be questioning where your priorities are currently. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Same yeah. as everyone else that starts their uh, their college that way. So oh, yeah. yeah, I went to school in in Maryfield. Actually, it's a little little school. I had thirteen kids in my graduating class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I had a lot of fun playing sports. And and but I always I always valued school. And I'm not saying I like school, but I mean I, I've always hated losing. Sure. And so, really, the Mark side of school drove me. It didn't really matter if it was math or French. Yeah. I just. I, I've never been good at losing. So yeah. it, that meant that I wanted high marks. Yeah. I, I cared about it. And, and it was driven into us by our parents, right? Mm-hmm. If I, uh, if I had bad marks, I missed hockey yeah. and hockey was pretty important to me. Yeah, totally. No different than I didn't really have curfews, but if I wasn't out to help with chores at eight o'clock, yeah. I wasn't going out next weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, you, you look back and at times it pissed me off to be honest, but uh, look back and my parents were pretty logical on a lot of the rules that they oh, yeah. set and taught us some pretty good things. Yeah, totally. I'm from Lemberg. So 19 people in my graduating class, same sort of thing. High marks. People are like, you should go in to be a lawyer. And you're like, oh, okay. I don't know what else I'm going to do with my life. So then you go and you're like, uh, I don't know if this is really for me. And then something else catches your eye a little bit and you're like, no, this is it. And that competition, I totally relate to as well. I'm the same way. It's like, cool. I'm challenging myself and stuff like that, but I also want to be the best in what I'm doing. So it's nice to, to take a look in your peripherals and be like, what's everybody else doing? And that kind of drives you that way as well. Well, I think, I think the, some of the small town, let's call it the, the really small town values, the Fairlights and the Lembergs, yep. the Merrifields, you also realize that your community doesn't have all the services you need. Totally. And yep. so I was playing hockey in Mooseman and Whitewood and playing baseball in Wawoda. And, and so pretty early on in my life, I understood that you have to collaborate to have any type of success, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't think your town's the best. You can't think your team's the best. Uh, and, and if you're if you're driven to succeed and driven to win, you, you better find a way to surround yourself with people that have the same yeah. goals, right? So true, yep. And, and I think 
I think in Saskatchewan, it's one of our biggest positives and negatives, right? We've, we really do have fierce independence. It's, it's why we live in Saskatchewan where, you know, the wind can blow you off one day, you can get four inches of rain the next, and it's beautiful yeah. the third, right? Yeah. Um, and, it, and a lot of small businesses get started here in Saskatchewan because everyone's so fiercely independent. But it can be our downside yeah. is because of that independence, we don't always look for collaboration mm-hmm. and, and we're pretty weak sometimes to pick up the phone, you know, when we could use a helping hand or, or a listening ear. And, so true. And so I think those are, you know, two pieces that come out of our rural roots. And, and like I said, they're, they're pretty big positives, but we also got to remember the downsides of it. Totally. So knowing you're competitive and knowing that you left your small town and, and people are like, oh, Christian's off to do great things. He's going to be a doctor. He's making us so proud. What was that like where you, you're like, this isn't my swim lane. This isn't something I want to do. Did that feel like you were failing? Like what, how did that feel for you? To be honest, I didn't think I was going to come home and farm. I enjoyed farming, but I didn't love it, right? Mm. And, and it was when I learned the business side of farming that it kind of drove me to it. It's kind of like, you know, if, you, if you're going to get in the hotel business, don't build a hotel where there's 15 of them. Put it somewhere where there's a lot of opportunity. Right. And so I saw a lot of opportunity in agriculture for a lot of reasons. I mean, land prices were low. At that time, it was a little tough with commodity prices. Um, the average age of farmers is between 58 and 65. Yeah. Opens up lots of opportunities. And I, and I had a pretty good strength in, in risk and financial management that isn't always that high of an acumen in agriculture. It's getting sure. better and better by the day. Yep. Um, so I saw lots of opportunity there. But yeah, for the first, I'd say seven, eight years of my career, I, uh, I spent too much time saying yes to too many things, trying to do too much. Yeah. And I do think that was partly from the, you know, I maybe didn't want to be coined as just a farmer. Yeah. And it's funny now, you know, I sit in my management meetings with my team on Fridays and I want to be just a farmer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was, we were at the farm show yesterday, my CFO and I, and I'm walking around and, you know, in, in plain pants and a t-shirt having coffee with the premier talking pretty high level stuff, mm-hmm. but that, that's who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a dress pant and, and tucked in shirt guy. Yeah. Um, I am just a farmer. And we're pretty proud of it, yep. right? There's a lot of cool stuff we do, but you know, in the later, you know, these last 10 years of my career, especially um, probably about 30, I realized that it is because we are good at what we do in farming that allows us to have the other opportunities of what we do in consulting and insurance and, and, you know, with the local communities Yeah, and that we need to be proud of that. Yeah. And sometimes I think in agriculture specifically, we let the pictures of the plaid shirts and the straw hats sometimes make us feel that way yeah when in fact you know we run multi-million dollar businesses oh yeah and it's something to be proud of and and it's for us we've decided it is our linchpin or our unicorn that the farm has to run as good as it can to allow us other opportunities definitely at the start of my career i said yes to too many things trying to be something special yeah in my own head i had this picture yeah uh, when when really special was just right in front of me for sure you use the term just a farmer and i think Lots of people, whether it's like growing up in like storybooks and stuff like that, they have an idea of what just a farmer looks like. But we'll talk about this with Hebert Green Ventures. Like there is a lot of depth to what you what you can do as just a farmer. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's talk about how your dad pointed you in that direction. You were talking about how he was saying, oh, I'm getting kind of weary about what the business looked like. And you're like, well, maybe I want to go back and be a farmer. How did he kind of point you in this direction to go down the accounting finance route compared to just coming back to the family farm or going into agronomy? Yeah. So, I mean, it was both my parents and and some other relatives too kind of led me down the path of the business. But I, I can remember one specific conversation with dad and, you know, my dad still works with me every day. Uh, I kind of call him a project manager because he's so good at so many things on the farm sure. and, and really forgets more about it farming most days than I even know. Okay. But uh, he knew then, to be honest, and, and not too many farmers at his age ha- 
I don't want to say have the capacity, but are honest enough with themselves to understand um, that he that he was a project manager. He was really good at growing grain mm-hmm. and really good at everything to do with the land, and you know, pretty damn good at the business side. Yeah. But he also knew that the business side was changing so fast and getting so big that that was an area of of training that we needed. And and in agriculture, it's a bit of a weakness to be honest that a lot of sons go take exactly what their dad is. Yeah. So if the dad's a mechanic, the son's a mechanic. If the dad's an agronomist, the son's an agronomist. And and it's part of why a lot of succession plans fail in all small businesses is if if you have two people that have leadership mentality and they're both trying for the exact same job, that doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've kind of pointed me down and, and I had taken a business law class in my when I was taking pre-med and enjoyed it. So kind of focused on accounting and finance and economics and and really enjoyed it because I kind of like math and, and enjoyed business. Mm-hmm. But it was all, he just felt that the business side is what was going to really take off kind of in in this decade or even kind of starting early in the early 2000s where prior to that it was a lot of, we just need to be way better at production. Yeah. And you know, so far I'd say he was, he was pretty bang on and, and it, and I think not only did it lead to our success that I took business and kind of found what really my passion was in agriculture. It also allowed our succession plan in that, you know, we were able to grow and have room for two leaders because dad's, he's got a leadership mentality too, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's not going to be a fourth liner on a hockey team. It's not who he is. Yeah. Um, and so it made enough room and our, and both of us to be in our lanes that we weren't stepping on each other's toes all the time and yeah. feeling like you were trying to pull power here or there. No, you, you just trusted the other person and let them be good at what they're good at. Totally. So you're, you go down this lane of, I'm going to go get a finance accounting degree going to bring that back because that is something that could be a big value add to our farm because your dad has this figured out already that makes a lot of sense do you have brothers do you have sisters yeah so i got a younger brother and a younger sister gotcha. uh, my brother actually has a cattle operation just uh, about five miles from the farm yeah so growing up i mean we had cattle and, and grain the whole time growing up and I, i'm i prefer eating steak not raising cattle sure and uh, and he's the other way he, he doesn't he's not a huge fan of the grain side so yeah. i'm also just personally in my accounting background, I'm not always the largest supporter of brothers in the same company. Okay. Uh, and, unless there's a real setup where one's going to be the CEO and one's going to be some sort of a manager. And yep. and so when I moved home full-time in kind of the end of 08, early 09, we split the farm into two different ventures, two different separate companies. Uh, him, My dad's in both, uh, but he's the managing partner of the cattle. And, and obviously I have the grain. And, right. And to be and to be honest, I think it's worked really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's expanded the cattle, and we work really well together. I seed all his land as if it's mine, and he's got his welding tickets. And anytime I, you know, have say issues there, he's over to help. And but at the same time, we're kind of in control of our own destinies and and not relying that part on each other. That um, makes sense. So it's worked well. So did you feel any pressure as like the older brother to like carry on the family farm? Like for my instance, my dad was a farmer. I was the only son and I had an older sister, but she's in education and I'm not much of a farmer. So I kind of weighed on me a little bit to be like, well, if, if I'm at the end of this lineage, then what happens to the farm? Do we sell the farm? Did you feel any pressure there when you were determining what your career path looked like? I would say now I do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, at the time when I moved home from school, I was 21 years old and my dad was 42. Sure. So, he's so I mean you know, there wasn't a lot of pressure then because the farm probably had 20 plus years in it yeah. before the decision had to be made. Right. Uh, I would say I feel it, you know, so I'm 39 now and dad's just over 60 and, and I would feel it now yeah. in that, uh, you know, you know, I'm tied to it. And like I said, it's our unicorn and I feel, you know, we're, we're pretty blessed to be alone land anywhere in the world, let alone make a living off it. Right. Um, so I, you know, I definitely, I got some pretty, uh, 
pretty hard beliefs on what should happen to our land in the future and, and yep. who should ever have the right to own it right. uh, as it moves through generations. And, and that it, it really is an opportunity and needs to be treated that way for and, sure. and has the ability to change families for generations. And, and I don't want to see that wrecked. Totally. Cause you've had generations in it already, as well as you've evolved this thing with your, with your family to this really impressive level. So tell me a little bit about evolving that business. When you come back with this finance and accounting degree, what does that look like for you? And what steps did you want to put in place to, to really level it up? Yeah. So, I mean, I had put in my years, I was thinking I was six years at Myers North Penny in the winters, but I'd always grain farmed in the summers and rented some land. And so when I came home full time, I mean, we had a, we had a couple ideas. The one thing that had kind of stuck with me from dad too, is I was maybe nine or 10 years old and he coached me hockey till that point. And then we switched towns and, and he looked me in the face and said, you know, I, I'd love to keep doing it, but the farms turned into a bit of a monster yeah. uh, in that it, it just takes up so much of my time that I can't fully commit. Mm-hmm. And, and I understood at the time, but kind of once I moved home, you know, I, I discussed it with my wife and I was just like, I can't do that. Mm. I mean, what, what am I trying to build a big business for if I can't show up at hockey practice? Yeah. Um, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that was the same opportunity my dad had. Cause at that time it was a lot of work harder, not smarter. And that's yeah. the only way you could do it. Yeah. I mean, there were some tough times in the eighties Oh yeah, and, but I just wasn't willing to have that be our legacy. And so, you know, I, I, at the time when I moved home, we were maybe three, 4,000 acres between the two of us. And, and I was always a big fan of 8,000 acre increments when it comes to machinery efficiencies and people. So that was kind of the first goal is, is let's get to 8,000 for a couple of reasons. We can maximize our efficiency and our investment in machinery. And secondly, we can start hiring some really good people Mm -hmm. and without good people, you know, you don't have a business, you have a job Mm -hmm. and you have to be there every day. And you can't get away from it. Yeah. Um, and then as we kept growing, you know, 8,000 to 16,000 was a, was a bit of a tougher jump because you start hitting large multiples of machinery. Yeah. And then after that, honestly, it just turns into math. So, I mean, we kind of have math on all the different machinery and humans. And, and so now whatever the expansion size is, we can kind of deal with it. But I underestimated as we got, you know, north of 20,000 acres and kept growing how much efficiency and enjoyment we would get out of a really good crew. Mm. Um, so, I mean, we have a mechanic and we've got a guy that used to push on the rigs that works full time for us. It's really good at projects. And we've got another guy that's, you know, phenomenal at the monitors and the f- kind of field manager type level. Yeah. Uh, and, and we get lots of kind of local people reaching out now. Um, we just hired a couple more here in the last three weeks, just reaching out to us, kind of wondering what's going on. Cause we don't, really advertise what we're doing too much. Yeah. Do a few podcasts and stuff that catch some attention, but I could probably get more enjoyment out of having people on my team better at everything I do than I do. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you know, our last expansion was seven, 8,000 acres. And I can remember calling a team meeting and saying like, I, I don't need any more. Now it doesn't scare me. Yeah. In fact, I think it's kind of exciting because mm-hmm. I kind of feel if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. But at the same time, if we need to spray on a Saturday in June, I'm not coming in. Yeah, totally. But it needs to, it's going to get done. Yeah. And so is everybody on board yep. to do this expansion? Yep. And it was, you know, everyone voted yes. That's awesome. So before you came on, did you have, um, like, did your dad have any other employees or what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, he always usually kind of had one, you know, at that time we always call them hired hands, hired, right? Yeah, they weren't hands. even team members. Yep. And then obviously my brother and I would, would help a lot and yep. mom helped a lot and, and dad's father-in-law uh, always ran a combine and helped out quite a bit yep. too. So what is let's compare and contrast real quickly. Like what is this progressive farm? Like, tell me what 
a progressive family farm looks like and compare that to like these bigger farm companies. What is the difference and what is your value add compared to some of these larger firms? So, I mean, a lot of the farm companies, I would deem farm companies in Canada really just own land or they're trying to do joint ventures with farmers. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's definitely some larger farm companies in the world, especially in Brazil. Um, and so I would say that the large family farm, now don't get me wrong, I'm incorporated. So you'd say I'm a company, but right. The ones that still have the family farm dynamics and, and rural roots, uh, which I have a lot of good friends that are every bit as large as we are or larger that kind of run that same system. I, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, we have the entrepreneurial dream. Yep. And I mean, it's pretty normal if you come to my farm that, uh, you know, you'll see my 10-year-old son out running a rock picker, getting trained by one of my guys, not me. But yep. you know, dad, dad hardly had time to teach me how to run a rock picker. Yeah. And my guys have time to teach my son, right? For sure. So, I mean, you, you, the family's around, absolutely. You know, they're, they're, and you can tell there's a real, you know, love and passion for, for the youth in the community and the youth of the team members. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, you, you have your entrepreneurial roots, so you're willing to pivot and adapt to change. Mm-hmm. And you surround yourself with really good people that feel they can actually have an influence. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing in big companies, I don't, I don't care if it's a bank or a chemical company or a farm company somewhere in the world, is uh, y- you really lose your tenacity when your team members don't feel that they can influence change at the upper level. Right. Right. Where my team, you know, we have management meetings every Friday, but pretty much everybody on my team would, would have a conversation with me every week. Totally. And so if there's, there's little things that are affecting our efficiencies in their lives, um, we can have a quick conversation about it and every Friday we'll make the decision. So we can, we can always take their input and change the ones that should be changed, or at least, you know, give feedback on, on why it's not changing because maybe they haven't heard the other side of the story. Yeah. And so I think that's the neatest part is it's not even necessarily the farm family. It's, it's any small business that has that family roots. Mm-hmm. If you can keep that in the culture, it, it's a huge opportunity and, and really, you know, it's, it's kind of like a silver bullet against a lot of companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you have that investment and that passion and that drive and you want to show up in big ways compared to just showing up, grabbing your paycheck, leaving, things like that. Also opens you up the opportunity to coach your kids hockey teams. Like, dad was I remember he'd come and watch volleyball if it was raining outside or things like that so but that is just the difference in in kind of that progressive family farm where you're sharing the wealth with people as well as knowledge and help and and just I think it just pays off in so many different ways so I've heard you talk about trusting your gut so you're talking about like bringing people in to make these expansion decisions but let's talk about how like Heber Green Ventures doesn't just happen based off of just data-driven analytics that definitely plays a part. How do you trust your gut? How do you build that process to change, to trust your gut so that you're not leading this team down a route that isn't a good one? Yeah. So I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with the crew talking about, I think companies should be built a lot more like a hockey team than some of what we learn in business school. So, I mean, what I mean there is the business school is a real pyramid from the CEO down to the janitor. Mm-hmm. And if the CEO is doing their job, you really shouldn't know that they've quit for three, six, nine months. If the janitor quits, you probably know tomorrow. Yeah. But for some reason, we have a different valuation of, of those two people. Where on a hockey team, if you take the coach out of it, um, you have captains and assistants, but really all they're better at is communicating. And for some reason, they have a little knack that people want to follow them, mm-hmm. whether it's because of their work ethic or because of the you know the, the good morals they have or, yeah. or lots of different reasons. Yeah. Um, but they're, but they're no more important than anybody else, right? If the other team has a breakaway, you hope your goalie's on his game. Mm-hmm. If you have a breakaway, you hope it's your sharpshooter, yeah. right? Got someone in the corner and in a, in a battle, you kind of hope it's your tough little winger. Yeah. So everybody has a point in the business that they are the most important. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about that and that, you know, I'm the leader and the visionary, but that means that I'm probably not the right guy to be changing a bearing. Right. It, it, like we're actually going backwards if I'm doing that. Yeah. And so understanding that everybody is the most valuable in, in certain situations mm-hmm. and that when you're not in that situation, your job is to support the others. Mm-hmm. And so the more time you see me doing stuff I shouldn't be doing is the less time I'm going to be, you know, doing visionary stuff, which allows us to grow. Yeah. And so kind of once we got that through the, through the team, they, they just bought into the concept. So, I mean, lots of times now, if the team sees me doing stuff that really wouldn't be in my lane, they'll come grab the shovel from me or grab this and yeah. just say, like, well, what are you doing? Here? Yeah, like, I'll take this. We'll get going on this. Right. And so when your team starts realizing, you know, kind of where they fit on the accountability chart, what their roles are and what yours are, yeah. um, then, then it starts to work pretty well. Right. But at the same time, you know, as the visionary, if, if I said, we're done growing right now, mm-hmm your job is your job for the next 30 years. I don't think I'd have a team for more than three months. Sure. I mean, the reason they're around is they're, they're addicted to the game, which includes growth, just like I am. Mm -hmm. And so far I, I execute on what I say. Right. Right. And, and that part, you know, it's no different than you want. I want my mechanic to execute on what he does. And I want my field manager to execute on what he does and my project manager to do the same, but they have those same expectations of me is that, you know, that probably once a month, Christian's going to walk in here with some crazy idea. Yeah. And, and maybe only three or four out of the 12 a year are going to work. But so far, the three or four work pretty well. Sure. And how do you structure your team? Like you've talked about it, like you have dreamers and you have doers and they, they shouldn't really kind of mix. You need to be intentional with having those people. But then how do you also um, shape that behavior, like, like shoveling a grain bin or something like that to know that that's a shared experience. We're all doing that. We're all putting in that investment. How do you do these doers, the dreamers, while also setting expectations for everybody? So for a lot of years, I was looking for ways to kind of structure it that that made sense to me. And, and that's when we stumbled upon uh, the EOS system, Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it's for fast-moving companies that want to have a pretty flat organization. And so that's where we we actually based it off of. So the dreamer is now kind of named as the visionary, which is me. And I have an integrator, which in a company culture would be my COO. Uh, and, and the neat thing about him is he can dream or at least enough to not think I'm crazy. Sure. But his, he's really good at taking that dream and explaining it to the to the line underneath him that we kind of call our L10 line, which is a line of managers. Okay. Um, and then we started kind of defining roles of managers. So like I said, we have a kind of a shop manager and a project manager and a field manager and then our office leadership team. But it's not that they're, you know, any more important than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about, I kind of believe that 80% of the time at your job, you want to be doing tasks that you really enjoy and you're really good at. And that's how I get the most productivity out of you. Right. And 20% of the time is going to be the stuff that we kind of call, you know, B and C tasks that you don't mind doing them or you maybe don't even like doing them, but it's just part of life. Right. I mean, I, there's, there's stuff that I do with my kids I don't like doing either. Yeah. But it's understanding that the goal of the operation is that 80% of the time you're doing stuff you love mm. and you're good at or the best at in our organization. Yeah. And I think that's how you maximize productivity in all areas of your life. And and so we, we literally do, we call it A, B, and C tasks. We kind of once a year go through it with everybody and just make sure the odd time we'll find something you know, that needs to be flipped between two people just because, um, you know, my, my integrator and myself just made an assumption yeah. um, of where it should be and we were a little off on it. And so lots of it is just having discussions. Mm-hmm. And then also having other team members relay to each other in meetings, you know, you did a great job here. Yeah. And, and this is why I think you did a great job here and they need to hear it from each other, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, we have with the team, I wouldn't call it weekly. It's more like twice a month meetings to kind of go through that and celebrate the wins and, and go through the issues and, and make decisions on the issues. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and then you just, like I said, the best thing about small companies is you can change, right? Yeah. You want to move some responsibilities around, um, and just make everybody understand that life's not perfect. 20% of what you do, you're not going to be in love with. For sure. But I'm not doing my job if I don't get as much of the stuff in your box that you love doing because yeah. you're going to do the best at it. For sure. It won't feel like work. Yeah. The best part, like as you're saying this, it's, we talked about that term of just a farmer, but there is such depth to this corporate structure and so much intention placed on culture and all that sort of stuff here where it is, I'm sure a lot of people working in human resources are listening, thinking, yeah, that's what we, we focus on too. I had no idea that this is something that farms work on as well. So you went to Texas A&M for um, an executive program. Is that where you really acquired this knowledge or is this through like grunt work and just, just observing and just leadership that's kind of kicking in here or a mix of both? Yeah, it's definitely both. I mean, I think, I think mentorship and, and knowledge slash education is where you continue to learn. And obviously, you know, the school of hard knocks, you learn from making mistakes. So, but Texas A&M was a huge one. when I went down there to take the TPAP program, a guy by the name of Dr. Danny Kleinfelter ran it. And Danny to this day has been one of my mentors, sits on our advisory board. And he, uh, he grew up on a farm in, uh, in the Midwest and his brother still runs it. So he, he's probably the the best agriculture educator I've ever met that can take really high level business topics and explain them in farmer terms. Mm. Uh, and so he had some, you know, he had some rules like the 5% rule that I've done some speeches on and, you know, the 80, 20 rule and different books you should read. And, but he really, he really pushed me. Uh, I, I asked him a lot of questions that week and ended up out for supper with him a few times. And with another uh, large farmer out of Indiana, a guy by the name of Kip Tom that I've relied on heavily over the years too. And great name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Country music artist yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty cool guy. Couple, I think he's got twenty thousand acres in Indiana and another five or six thousand in Argentina, and has forever. Oh wow! Because uh, that's how he managed risk. Yeah, and those were the types of questions Kip and Danny asked me. You know, I at that time we weren't seeding twenty four hours, and Danny said, "Well, why?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, same old Saskatchewan excuses. It's too wet or it's too dark." And and he goes, "Let me reword that. Three years from now, you're seeding twenty four hours. What did you do different?" Hmm. So you know, I need to hire two or three more guys to have the crew, but then that would actually reduce everybody's hours and probably need to do a little minimum tillage in front during the day so we could map it out at night to make it easier and make sure the, the cedar's in the best part of the field at night. And all of a sudden from that day forward, we've never not went 24 hours. And actually the last four days of this year, we didn't run 24 hours and my crew hated it. They all want to go back because okay. you work less yep. when the shifts, the shifts are set up. So that really TPAP kind of opened my eyes to making sure that I, I didn't just think like a small farmer, one, like a farmer from Southeast Saskatchewan two, like a farmer from Saskatchewan three, and that realizing that agriculture is a global industry. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, uh, I always used to say Ukraine, they're in a little bit of trouble right now, but I mean, there's farmers in Ukraine that got up eight hours ago to kick my ass. Right. Now that might not be their motto, Mm -hmm. but we're all selling to the same people. Yeah. And so, yes, we need to collaborate, but we also need to understand we are competing. Yeah. Um, And they really opened my eyes to that. Cool. So you're kind of talking about the risks that, um, in farming, it's it's all over the place, whether it's political, whether there's so many different risks that you have to mitigate. And I remember like I would come home from school and it was hailing outside and my dad was just sitting looking out the window with like a drink in his hand and just the look in his eyes. I'm like, oh, this this is horrible. How do you balance, especially with such a like a big company here? How do you manage the mental health impacts of risk? Yeah, you know, my wife would probably tell you that she's not sure I feel stress. Okay. It's kind of one thing that I, you know, I was blessed with a little bit. I would say that I maybe just deal with it a little different than others and that 
you know, one, I'm really comfortable with the numbers. So I understand, you know, where we are when we start seeding and, and we build a risk management plan. I mean, to be honest, I started a company just to do it called Maverick Ag that yeah. focuses nothing but on financial and risk management. Yeah. Uh, Cause I believe you need to, you need to sleep good at night every night in order to, to run a successful business. Yeah. So our goal is always, you know, basically by the end of January, but especially by the time we start seeding that I already know the worst case scenario. Mm. If the whole farm got wiped out, here's where we are sure. and, and we can farm again next year. And the, and the three or five years after that, no problem. Um, now, do I still get a little frustrated with storms? Absolutely, because yep. it's an opportunity cost. It's mm-hmm. lost revenue. Mm-hmm. So some of the upside is lost, but we also know we're not phoning Richie Brothers. Yeah, uh, And I think a lot of times that's maybe a little overlooked in agriculture, right? We spend a lot of time at, at farm shows looking at, you know, new equipment or the newest pesticide or some new fertilizer product, but we don't always spend a lot of time looking at risk management, you know, BRM programs, working capital and, and interest rates. Yeah. Uh, but we spent a lot of time on that. So, I mean, you know, we got kind of a rolling 18 month budget of which, you know, we got a scorecard we keep track of every Friday. So that side of the risk, to be honest, it it really doesn't bother me at all. I mean, kind of the only two things that, that worry me a bit in agriculture is, is policy and currency. Yeah. Uh, cause those drive probably the biggest risk to our business and any commodity business in the world. And, and we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of pull over those things and nor can you, you know, I can't take a hedge on, uh, on good or bad, you know, federal leadership. Yeah, love that. Love that having a plan in place helps you sleep at night. Question for you, what do you lose sleep on at night? Anything? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would say uh, I struggle with I struggle with guilt. So, you know, we've built a really good team and, uh, and they, you know, they get work done when the work needs to get done. But, I mean, I grew up the same as you did. Mm-hmm. You know, m- my dad worked seven days a week and that was just normal. Yeah. Uh, and so when I have a crew in there on weekends and, I might be running to a hockey rink. I do realize that my, you know, my crew has kids and a wife at home too. Yeah. And, and even though, you know, we, we pay well and we have shifts set up to do it as little as possible, it happens. And it, uh, it still pulls at me pretty hard when I know I have crew at work when I don't, when I'm not there working, yep. but I also can't work, you know, six days a week, 52 weeks a year, 24 hours a day either. So that's the one thing that, that I struggle with. And then secondly, I mean, m- most days I feel that we're, you know, we're at least reasonably organized and, and can accomplish most of the experiences we want with our own kids. But I mean, you, you take a year like this where mother nature threw us a bunch of curveballs, and, you know, from May 1st until even today, it's probably the, you know, the busiest six or seven weeks of my life that I've had to this point. Yeah. Uh, and last year went pretty smooth. I mean, yes, it was dry, but we still grew a pretty good crop and honestly we probably worked less than we've ever worked and made more money than we've ever made. So it was, it was a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. Uh, so this last seven weeks have, have reminded me that uh, that we're still human and and that really you want to have a business so you have more than a job and, and you can change, you know, hopefully your kids and your family's life and hopefully improve the industry. And, and obviously on the farm, we want to improve the land. But uh, if you don't, if you're not there to be able to, you know, support and, and create experiences with your wife and kids, um, then really what are you doing it for? Totally. So... Yeah, those those two guilts are be the two things that uh, that eat me up a little bit. Yeah, and and it gets harder and harder. I mean, we've been pretty lucky with some of the successes we've had, and and success tends to breed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I I say no to opportunities so big now that you know me ten years ago would would not fathom yeah. that we would ever say no to it. Right, and it's it's to do with that guilt and that you know you got to weigh the opportunity versus what you have already and, and what you need to accomplish, you know, on the, on the life worth living side. Right. I, sure. I kind of joke that most couples, right. Need to add up to a hundred percent and, and that there's two pieces to it. You, you got to have enough 
you got to make enough money to, to have, to live the life you want. Yep. But then you actually have to have a life worth living. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I, I do have a lot of friends that, uh, that don't have a life worth living in mm-hmm. my opinion, right? They've got too focused on just the money side. Yep. Um, and I, uh, you know, I'd be lying to say I don't bump up against that sometimes, right? And, and some days it feels like we have money and then the next day, you know, mother nature hits and sure. we don't. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you got to remember to make sure you got a life worth living and, and create experiences yeah. with your kids. It's a balance between work-life balance that does exist in agriculture, as well as you were talking about if you're sleeping, somebody's waking up six hours earlier and kicking your butt. So it's it's weighing out that that balance so that you have both sides of life worth living while still managing a business. Okay, let's pause there for a minute. Christian has nerves of steel and even he isn't immune to the stresses of egg business. Connexus has a designated egg team with egg advisors that specialize in helping farmers and producers all across the province. To share what the Connexus egg team can do to help you sleep easy, I have a regional vice president of agriculture, Todd Andrews on the line. The floor is yours, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Mason. Our egg advisors work closely with each member to formulate a plan as unique as their operation. Through in-depth conversations, your advisor will gain an understanding of your goals, and through the full suite of products and services, they will create a structure that works for you. These plans can address everyday banking, loans, such as operating lines, mortgages, equipment loans, and more. And our teams can also assist with investing and succession planning. Our teams also work and live where, where you do, so you can be assured that they are aware of what is actually going on in your area and how it may impact you and your business. Our advisors are passionate about agriculture and with strong knowledge and experience, they're able to be a partner that is focused on your goals and success. Other ways that we support producers and all business owners is through our business accelerator courses, where we bring professionals in virtually to speak about numerous topics that can help you and your business. And it's totally free. You can find more information about this at our website, connectus.ca, click the business tab, and it can be found under resources. We have ag advisors across the province. If you'd like to learn more, simply reach out to our member contact center at 1-800-667-7477 and they will connect you with an advisor in your area. Thanks, Todd. I work very closely with our ag team and I can vouch for them. They know their stuff and they're also great people and friendly faces in your community. Christian works closely with our ag team too. Now let's get back to our interview with them. So I think what can counteract this guilt, I've heard you talk about your four core values and how they show up and how you show up. Can you tell us a little bit about what those four key values are? Yeah. So going through the EOS process was pretty neat. I mean, you had to, you can't just write core values on the wall. Cause I mean, that's just what you wish they were. Yep. Right. So you actually go through all your people and, and why they're your best people. Mm. And, it, and it was pretty funny. I mean, we, we had hired people to follow kind of the values that dad had started and then, you know, and then I had continued to create. So our first one is, you know, can't isn't an option. It's just a challenge, which is just a polite way to say we hate losing. Yeah. Right. Sure. Uh, and so we find ways to win. Now, do we do it differently sometimes? Do we change the direction sometimes? Absolutely. Uh, you know, do we have to quit doing it the way we do it or, or really just fail at that one and then make a new decision? hundred mm-hmm. percent. But, you know, as a team, we do feel that we can conquer every challenge that's yeah. thrown at us. Sure. Um, and that's by having a bunch of different people. Yeah. Secondly, you know, we believe in the growth mentality. Mm-hmm. If, if we're not growing, we're dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, inflation is normally 3%. We could argue that it's going to be 6 to 10 in the next <laughs> few years. Uh, and, and, and you don't have to just grow in acres, yeah. right? You can you can grow in revenue. You can grow in a whole bunch of different areas, uh, community support, et cetera. So, you know, growth mentality is very important to us. Our third one's innovate and optimize. So that's basically saying there was a, there was a university or a school one time I did a speech at in, in the U.S. and it had it on the wall that the most dangerous phrase to say is that we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. And that's really our innovate and optimize is that technology is changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And also 
so are people's capabilities. Yep. And so it's our job to, to optimize both those things and continue to improve and realize that we don't farm the way we did 20 years ago. Yep. And it's not going to be the same in 20 years from now. So we don't want to be at the bleeding edge, but we sure want to be at the front of the pack. Yeah. So we we focus a lot on that and, and getting feedback from the team because I'm not in every job anymore. So we've got to take their ideas to, yeah, to pull in. For sure. And the last one that, that really probably is driven a lot by me is this win-win mentality. So, I mean, if I, if I walk away from making a big deal, whether it's, you know, whether it's a land deal or a new business or, or just signing up a new team member, I mean, I want us both to walk away from the table happy we made the deal but really more excited about the future and the next deal yeah. because we both feel we won. Now, do we both have to give up a little bit? Maybe, yeah. but we're really excited about the future together. And, and I don't think that was always the way in the past. There was a lot of win-lose deals in the world of business that someone had to feel like they were a winner. Yeah. And, and I think that limits your success in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time working through deals and, and conversations, really understanding what the other side wants. And then hopefully we can collaborate to get to that. And if not, then the deal doesn't work. I hope there's my fantasy football league is listening to that because the amount of trades that request that is so one-sided or yes, maybe you'll get some success in the short term, but in the long term, are you going to be really excited to have a discussion or potentially negotiate with that person again? Absolutely not. So tell me a little bit about technology and how that is impacting agriculture a little bit. You're talking about if you're not innovating, you're dying at the moment. And Things are changing so much in agriculture right now, especially with ag tech. How are you adapting to technology and agriculture at the moment? Yeah, so we had a dream. I mean, John Deere released a video in 2012 called Farming Forward that at the time I think was was pretty innovative. I mean, a farmer walks out from his bedroom, sets his coffee cup on his desk, and, and holograms pop up on the screen. And, <laughs> and they're mimicked in the tractor that one of his guys is in. Sure. And to be honest, that, that was kind of the base of my dream. It was like, Long term, I want to be able to run our farm from my desk. And mm-hmm. I don't care if I'm in Fairlight or if I'm, you know, with my kid playing hockey in Kelowna or where we're on a trip to Europe as a family. Mm-hmm. I don't want to run everything. I want to run my farm and I want to be able to do that from anywhere. Right. Which means that, I, you know, I need technology and dashboards in order to get me the critical information to make good decisions to, to have continued success. Yeah. So that's kind of where the dream started. And those three kind of screens were based on one is your, your agronomy screen, obviously on the farm. That's pretty important. What's going on in the field, what's going on in the soil, what the rainfall is. You know, my second screen is, is my machinery and my people. Mm-hmm. So once we know what we need to do for work, you, you have to use your assets to get the work done. Yeah. And then third is your financial screen. Am, am, is what I'm doing working, right, compared to budget and, and our budgets updating and pro formas. And fourthly, I would say we've almost added on kind of this ESG screen. Uh, and, and it's because the consumer wants it. Yeah. Um, and I think we're not doing a great job as an industry right now, really telling the consumer everything we've done. I yeah. mean, I, I did a presentation for the Global Mail in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, I just explained fertilizer as vitamins and food to kids and, and herbicides as a prescription medication when my, you know, my daughter's got whooping cough. Yeah. And, and to someone in Toronto, that makes sense. Yeah. They'd understand why you'd use fertilizer and a herbicide. Right. But yet you use the word herbicide and they think it's cancerous. Mm. Right. And so that, that screen is something we've kind of added on because to be, to be honest, ultimately the check writer is the consumer. And, we might not always agree with their opinions, which means we need to educate to change them, but we also need to highlight all of the great things we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's, those are the four screens we based on, which then drives a lot of our technology. So for instance, you know, my John Deere, I could open up my phone right now and show you the 10 pieces of machinery I've run in a day, you know, how much fuel's in them, who's running them, so what cool. it's done, etc. cetera. Awesome. Uh, but things as simple as, I mean, you got to see an ROI and, and you can't 
spend money on everything. Mm-hmm. Nor can you have a hundred apps, right? You got to pick four or five that are your key ones. And yep. so something as simple as Voxer, I mean, it's kind of like WhatsApp. Yep. You can use it on an iPhone, an Android or a computer. And so all of our team communication is set up in Voxer, everything. Yep. So we have, you know, different chats, the whole team, the sprayer team, you know, the meal team, et cetera. But everything work goes through Voxer. So when I look at my phone, uh, you know, so we're going to be in this podcast for an hour, hour and a half. The first thing I'll look at when I leave here is my Voxer mm-hmm. because that's work. Yep. And there's two or three chats that need my answers. And mm-hmm. so if they have notifications on them, it's the first thing I'll do. Yep. And so something as simple as having your work communication separate from your personal communication can completely change your life. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting too from we're talking about this just a farmer and people think of farming as just technology has nothing to do with it. But a lot of the time, if like combines can almost drive themselves now, like it's, and even the technology you're explaining right now, it layers into business. It layers into um, the entire ecosystem of agriculture at the moment. And a lot of your story involves involving others and investing in others. So let's talk about how you're doing that at the moment. Cause um, you're doing some really cool things with um, investing in other people. So tell me a little bit about why it's important for you to invest in agriculture's ecosystem as well as different egg producers across the world. I, I kind of joke, right? Because the marketing world has grabbed this this term sustainable mm. and, and they want to say that Canadian agriculture is currently a long ways from sustainable. Um, and so the topic of my speech when I went out to Toronto was sustainability and that, you know, congratulations, marketing gurus, you finally realized what we've cared about for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. I mean, on my farm, if my land degrades uh, in a generation, the only people I actually screwed is my own kids. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty, pretty sure I'm not trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, do I learn new stuff and can I get better? <laughs> Absolutely, I can. Right. But, you know, internally, I got a, I got a legacy statement that hangs on the, the wall of my office and it's that we want to leave the land, the financial statements our industry and our community in a better state generation after generation. Mm. And we have our reasons for that. I mean, our land is our bread and butter. If, if we wreck it, you know, we've, we've lost the engine to our car. Yeah. Obviously if your if your financial statements don't allow you to keep growing and pay bills, you've once again wrecked it. Yeah. Our industry has to continue to move forward because even though we compete against everybody in the world, we still have something to be pretty proud of in Canada that we are world leaders in agriculture. Yeah. But at the same time, right now, our provincial and federal agriculture budgets are 80 to 85% spent on BRM programs, risk management, which is retroactive, not on the future. Right. Uh, so I wouldn't say we're necessarily going down that right path. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, we have a real, you know, soft spot for our community because how do you get great people to come work in Mooseman? Mm. Uh, I use double A hockey as an example. I mean, if your son's a double-A hockey player in Edmonton, uh, you can't play double-A peewee hockey in Mooseman. Yeah. you got to drive an hour and 45 minutes one way for practice. So it actually doesn't matter if I offer you twenty five dollars or $30,000 more than you're making. Yeah. You're going to just spend it in gas. Yeah. And so realizing that community services and having a vibrant community really does drive uh, economic output and international investment is something that we work on lots with the province. Yeah. But So those those that philosophy is what led us down this investment strategy is that you know, we obviously own a lot of land. That's part of our portfolio. Our main business is a farm. You know, we really struggled with risk and financial management advice in the industry. So hence why we started Maverick Ag. And, and, and we think that the industry is really missing kind of continued education for farmers. So you're going to see us launch some new stuff out of Maverick down that path too, in that 
we look for the best people to collaborate with, but sometimes it's just not there. Yeah. And so then if we think we're, we're strong enough at it to help the industry, we will. And then lastly is that I don't believe a hundred percent of our profits should always be reinvested in the farm. Mm. I mean, we need to be diversified. And in the old days, diversifying was you had grain and cattle or you had grain and dairy or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And, And we maybe just think a little bit bigger in that we have grain and then we have a multiple number of other small businesses we invest in. Yeah. I just don't like the stock market. Mm-hmm. I, I don't trust some guy in New York that is running a fund. Sure. And, and maybe I should trust him, but I don't believe he's down in the trenches. The same entrepreneurs are. So we really do look for entrepreneurs and technologies that, that we think are going to change our business or change the area. Yeah. Right. So obviously we're, we're big in ag tech and I've had a lot of luck in ag tech and, and, want to give back to that industry, but I'm also have a soft spot for commodities. So, I mean, another cool one around that's a Saskatchewan based one is we've invested quite a bit in Prairie lithium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was for two reasons. The founder is amazing. He's, he's one of those founders that, you know, under promises and over delivers. And those are the kind of people I want to invest in. Yep. You know, he's a, he's a rural kid. And, and secondly, you know, I think lithium is going to change uh, a lot of our business in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that agriculture, I think is going to get to a ton of electric, but I do think cities are, mm-hmm. which then changes how, you know, the diesel and hydrogen type models work. Mm-hmm. And so an easy way to pay more attention to something and learn more is put your own money in it. Yep. So now all of a sudden, I, you know, I read a lot more on lithium and energy than I ever used to because we've invested in lithium and energy companies. Yep. But we're, we're kind of looking for technologies we like, you know, industries we like and founders that have a little knack that I think is pretty neat. Yeah. Because investing it is partly the one to see the return. But, but secondly, it, it's kind of my way of learning, right? I, I do a lot of reading and, and I do a lot of watching mm-hmm. and, and I really like learning and watching other entrepreneurs and, and there's hopefully stuff I can teach them, yep. which really is just mistakes I've made that hopefully they don't have to make. Yep. But at the same time, you know, in every conversation, you can learn something from somebody else. And, and I think, I think entrepreneurs are some of the most interesting people on earth. So yep. an easy ways to invest in them and, and help them on the journey and, and, and I'll learn as much as I can give. Now, you almost have this really cool entrepreneurial cooperative model where you're so agile and, and you're not afraid to invest in things that will make your your business better. But it's also in a way, in a lens that makes the entire ecosystem better as well. So you're not just, you're reinvesting back into your ecosystem that you're working and you're playing in to make it a better place. It's so cool to watch. As I'm preparing for this podcast, talking to people, listening to what you're doing, reading about you, you have your hands all over the place in, in, in great ways and how you're reinvesting, not just your time, uh, money in so many different industries, as well as different companies. And you're mentoring so many different people. And you also have to make sure that Heber Green Ventures is thriving as well. How do you allocate your time? So, I mean, I would say the first thing that we did right in this is in our succession plan, you know, when mom and dad and my wife and I were going through it is, we didn't have mine and yours. Mm. Everything was ours and, it, and it's just at a percentage. And so whether it's Grieber Grain Ventures or a company we've invested in or a new company I'm going to start, our ownership percent is exactly the same. Mm. And so everybody in the ownership group, which includes my farm COO, is is one of the owners and so is my CFO who are both outsiders. They they basically know that my, my job every morning when I get up is just to do what I think is most important. Sure. Um, some of the times that, that make it a bit interesting is, I mean, and it's been pretty neat as I add better and better people underneath me, I find that I'm working farther and farther out. Mm-hmm. 
So important used to be get up and run a sprayer, and it still is occasionally. You know, if the, my crew needs a break, I'll go out at 4.30 and spray so they don't have to come in till 9 or 10. And, yep. But the next day, I you know, I might be here doing podcasts and, and doing some stuff on policy and meeting with some founders. But usually kind of our niche, as we say, is solving agriculture's puzzles. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and it sounds super corny, but in its own way, you know, I've got, I kind of got four or five master puzzles that I have in my head of where we need to be in 10 years yeah. that are two thirds complete. Cool. And so when I get up in the morning, I'm focusing on day by day, picking up the pieces in order to, to finish those puzzles. Yeah. And, and you never quite know where that knowledge is going to come from. Yeah. I mean, I spent, uh, spent a couple weekends ago in Winnipeg all weekend with my son who's 10 and, and he's playing on a pretty high level hockey team. And first kind of first time in his life, where he hasn't been in the top couple of kids on a team. Mm-hmm. And so we're working through the lessons of, you know, you didn't get the tap for a power play when he's always got the tap. Yeah. And, and he's asking me and, and we got to work through, well, now just remember though, when we go back to our home team, there's kids on that team that don't get the tap too. And dad's usually coaching. Yeah. And so if you want to be a good teammate, you know, you need to understand when you're too tired and you need to tell your coach, I think you should send somebody else because I'm too tired. Right. And you need to make sure you go grab those teammates after the game and they're every bit as important and yeah. they still come for the plays and, and, and you realize what they're doing for the team. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, as I'm working through that with my 10 year old, it also makes me realize that, you know, those conversations are super important with our own team. Oh, yeah. Those are the best conversations. And yeah. we forget to have them. Yeah. Right. I use ro- the, the rock picking crew. I mean, ever not a lot of people enjoy the job and we have some guys that really enjoy it. And yet, you know, it finishes up. 10 days, two weeks after seeding this year, even longer because of the rain. And I'm always pretty good at slapping everybody on the back after seeding, but I'm not always that good at making sure, you know, my farm manager, Jeff, or I make sure we talk to the rock picking crew. Yeah. Uh, and, and same thing with the girls in the office and my wife. I mean, there's a lot of books that gets done. And, and I mean, we do a lot of freezer meals. So they pre-make meals for us and we have warmers and all the equipment. And I mean, they'll make 300 to 500 meals a year. Yeah. And I mean, part of the reason we do it is, you know, you get out there for 12 hour shifts and, Guys get a little lazy making their lunch, and all their show their all of a sudden they're showing up with a bag of chips and a, and a Pepsi oh, to totally. get through the day, and yep. they're useless. Yep. Oh, yeah. And now all of a sudden they get you know they got full lasagnas to take in their vehicle, and yeah. and I can see the pep in the crew. Totally. But then I don't always remember to go you know to the office staff and my wife and be like, you know you guys you guys were the home run hitters today. Hundred percent. You know it was it, it was two degrees out. There was an eighty k wind. We all felt like crap. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the highlight of my day was when I got to eat your lasagna. <laughs> four o'clock in the <laughs> yeah, morning. That was great lasagna. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's just to always remember how all those team members fit in. And, and that, that's kind of my job is to make sure every day I'm trying to learn something from somebody mm-hmm. uh, and also not pushing my vision, you know, on everybody. Cause I know that I can be dominant as a leader. Right. And mm-hmm. my wife's pretty good at reminding me sometimes of what the other side of the story is. Right. She, yeah. she didn't grow up on a farm and she supported me all along the way. And, and don't get me wrong, the first time I'll get the question the odd time, it'll piss me off to be like, well, like, why would you even ask that? It makes no sense. That's not what I'm saying. Right. When really, if I take the time to think about it, it's like, you know what? The, the spouse of one of our guys is probably thinking that exact same thing. True. You have such a good vision where you can see problems that are coming down the pipeline, but you also have that ability to peel it back and be present and realize how important your time is now with your family and how your team members' time with their family is. Let's tie this interview together. I'd like to hear a story about one of your biggest learnings, something that you not necessarily failed at, but something that like really you took a lot of perspective, a learning opportunity for you. 
Well, yeah, so I probably I probably got a couple of them. The first one I would say I go to 2019. <clears throat> it was the worst harvest in our farm's entire life. We got a whole bunch of snow in the middle of harvest, and only time I've ever left a crop out and didn't completely finish. My dad's had a couple others in his life, but it was uh, it was December 22nd. There's a foot of snow on the ground, and you can't. The only way you can combine the snow is when it's really cold. Right. So we, it was the last day we were going to try and get this field done, and we made it made it optional for the crew. So we're going to meet at midnight. It was minus 25, wind chill to minus 40. Oh, my gosh. It's going to suck, yeah. right? we got generators and lights bars out there. It takes us an hour just to get combines running, and you're digging ice out. And I, I pulled up at 11.45, 11.30, thinking I'd get everything running. Mm-hmm. Then I get there, and half my crew's already got everything running, and Tim Horton's for everybody, and everybody else was there by 11.45. We, had, we didn't have one single person that didn't show up. Oh, wow. And, I mean, it was hell. Yeah. Like, it sucked. Yeah. Uh, and so that that probably really showed me that, you know, without a doubt, you have to pay fair mm-hmm. and you have to have programs to, to make your team members feel included. But at the same time, there's just things that we must do on a day-to-day as, as leadership and as teams to make everybody feel part of a team. Yeah. And, and I think that's driven into us from when we're young, right? And and we look for it on resumes, kids, like people that have played team sports. Yeah. Because they just know they can't succeed without them and that you have to rely on each other and there's going to be days you're pissed off at each other, but there's going to be days that you win and and a day like, you know, midnight, December 22nd kind of really reminded me that we must be doing something right. Totally. Right? Um, so that that was my one lesson and just, you know, just always remember to look at it from both sides and and just just remember that my team, they are not employees, mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're bought into our farm as if it's as if it's their farm. Yeah, they're the family of the family farm. <clears throat> and that yeah. that's the thing, right? We'll, we'll, I have a lot of local area type issues or even, you know, national where we want to get, they want to call us a corporate farm, mm-hmm. right? Because we're big, whether that's neighbors or, or at the provincial level or the federal level. And and my argument is I, I just wish you could have been there that night because mm-hmm. you had a bunch of 25 to 45-year-old people showing up in some of the worst working conditions ever and still joking. Yeah. Like they were part of the farm. Yeah. And and are they exactly family? No, but would we do anything for them? Yeah. Absolutely we for would. Sure. Oh, that's um, awesome. So that that would be the one that kind of really taught me that part and that we need to focus on it and how important it is and you know since then we've kind of implemented I, I my farm manager's always been part of ownership but we've kind of got a phantom profit share plan now for the crew and and uh you know I've got a couple different dreams on how long term can we structure something to to basically say, you know, you, you come be part of our system for 15, 20 years and, and we'll find a way to make you a millionaire, right? And I don't have it figured out yet, yeah. but it's one of my big puzzles. Awesome. Um, you know, secondly, I think it's just the importance, you know, of mentors and, and of learning from every conversation. So kind of one example of a conversation, I was on a plane one time and the guy beside me owned four resorts in Mexico. And, and as farmers, we always like to pretend that mother nature is our biggest risk and we have no control over it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we even, you know, we joke about it, but I kind of told him that and he said, do you believe in it? And I said, well, not, not really. I don't have it solved, but I think policy is my biggest risk. And he goes, well, I agree with you. I said, oh, well, explain. So he said, I, I own resorts in Mexico. Like, do you think people like it when they get up in the morning and it's pouring rain? They wrote a check for a week. Yeah. I said, no. I said, well, what do you do? He said, we have a rain plan. So my whole crew knows if they get up and it's raining, here's where the chairs have to get moved. Here's the activities inside we have to get going. Here's all the things we have to make it still feel like Mexico. Because mm-hmm. he said, people can still eat pine- pineapple and drink pina coladas inside. 
Awesome. And then when the sun comes out, they're still pretty happy. Yeah. Where if we just expect them all to stay in the room for half a day, mm-hmm. they'd be pissed off. Totally. So he said, what's your rain plan? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a rain plan. Right. A- and yet when we switched to 24 hours, we kind of did have a rain plan. Mm-hmm. If it was raining, it didn't matter. We still just came in and that crew did fixing, which meant the next crew started when the sun came out and it, it started us to get developing a rain plan versus everyone gets up in the morning wondering, what the hell am I going to do today? Yeah, totally. So that, that would be kind of my second story is that you know, random people, if you ask good questions and listen, can teach you some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. What would you tell somebody who was feeling like they weren't in the right swim lane? Like they are, but they're afraid of changing, whether it's that fear of failure, whether that perception of it, you've done it yourself. What would you tell them? I think the first step is be real sure that you feel you're in the wrong lane. You're not being told you're in the wrong lane. Yeah. So in today's world, especially with social media, um, there's a lot of people that want to influence our decisions and there's a lot of people that want to push their their theory on top of you. Yeah. So make real sure that in your in your gut, are you in the right lane or, or not? Yeah. Secondly, you know, if you're not, um, I, I would find people that you really trust to, to use as mentors mm-hmm. and ask their opinion. And to be honest, some of your mentors' opinions aren't going to be what you should do. Yeah. But they're an opinion to give you more perspective to make the right kind of logical decision for yourself. Yeah. And thirdly, I would say, like, the, be- the best part about being an entrepreneur is, guess what? You can change your decision tomorrow. Yeah. It is not set in some strategy book that's 10 years long. Mm-hmm. So if new data and new information comes available tomorrow that says you were wrong yesterday, yeah. guess what? You were wrong yesterday. You already went to bed, and today you can be right. Yeah. Don't, don't let a bad decision hang over you. Yeah. Make the right one with the new information. And, and if you explain it that way, your team will understand, yeah. right? You, here's, here's why we had to do this. Yeah. I mean, we had some examples this spring where we actually had one of our liquid fertilizer carts came in our shop three times and had tires on and off it twice. Yeah. It was a pain in the ass, Yeah, but kind of explained why we did it and the theory and by fluke, you know, it was really wet this spring, which is what we were worried about. Yeah. And, and my team was coming up to me saying, you know what, we, we were pissed off when we had to do it, Yeah. but thank God we did it. Yeah. And so now we've had that conversation that in the future, guess what? I'm not going to have to veto anybody on having to do it a third time. Sure. They're just going to do it. Yeah. And, and, and it was just because data and information and, and especially in today's world, supply and logistics yeah. change on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But just be comfortable in your gut as an entrepreneur and realizing that the one thing you're allowed to do different than big companies is make a new decision every day if you want. Cool. Question for you regarding like the family aspect. Do you ever reflect back on how cool it is to be able to run this business with your dad, a part of it? You've learned so much from him. Like from my side, that's always something that I wondered if I went down that path, what it would be like. My dad's since passed away, but anytime I go out to that family farm, you just feel him there. You have so many memories. And I always wondered what that would be like to be able to go into business with him in that aspect. What's that like for you? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's days it's stressful, but uh, I mean, you could ask anybody around me and I'd, I'd tell you that, you know, my I wouldn't pick many business partners over. My dad is, as a business partner are basically one of my best friends and mm. I got a great relationship with both my parents and my mom was always super involved in the farm too. And, and, and I mean, I, I wouldn't be where I am without them. And, and I especially wouldn't be where I am without my wife, Teresa. I mean, she didn't grow up on a farm yeah. and her parents had a small shop. And I mean, she didn't even really grow up knowing what debt was because that wasn't part of their life. And obviously debt on a 30,000 acre farm is a big number. Sure. Uh, so to kind of have that undying support and, and your peripheral team especially in busy seasons. I don't care if it's in a farm or any other small business. I mean, they, they go over and above to pull their weight and, and keep your life 
together because mm-hmm. it could be an absolute gong show. Right. So I think that part, you know, is really exciting and, and, you know, things as simple as, you know, my daughter's not as much into the farm as my son is, but she'll still come ride and, and we'll play X's and O's on the windshield. Yeah. Right. Yep. And those are memories that, that I don't know how much, if she understands how much they mean to me. Right. Yep. And, and I think probably what really solidified it is, uh, we lost my one grandma here this, this year and, and her one thing, and, and she was, she lived a good life. She was 87 or 88 years old. And, but every year she made sure she came to ride in the combine because her husband helped my dad a lot yeah. and she was always out there a lot. And, and that it was one of her favorite things to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And she wanted to, you know, wanted to ride with me every year. So I don't run a combine much anymore, but yeah. I always did that day. Yeah. And, and so this year by fluke, to be honest, because my wife's way better at taking pictures than I am. I, I remembered this year to get a picture of her coming out of the combine and, Aww. And in today's world, I mean, we're actually putting some decals on a bus and I'm going to put the picture of her coming out because yeah. there's a lot of businesses where, where you don't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's be honest, if you're a small business owner, like it's not just your business, it's it's part of your life. Oh, absolutely. And so to be able to have the, you know, those people around me uh, in part of it and, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, they, to be honest, they probably think I'm crazy with some of my ideas, but at the same time, you know, can keep you down to earth and support you at, on those decisions as well is, uh, yeah, it's pretty special. You can't, you can't even really explain it. Yeah. That's the secret sauce of, of the family farm right there. Stripping back, like, like Heber Green Ventures has done some really amazing things in the past decade. The amount of growth that you've seen is, is amazing, but let's strip that back. What does that mean to you to manage a family farm here in Saskatchewan? You know, I think originally when, when we first grow up in rural Saskatchewan, we, we probably hear quite a few times that, uh, you know, I can't wait to get out of here mm-hmm. and go to the Toronto or the New York or, um, I mean, when I was taking my business degree, there was always the, the MBA route and, you know, end up working for Goldman or someone like that. And, you know, in today's world, like I said, it, it's kind of that, the ironic side of just a farmer mm. in that I'm, I'm not sure currently that there's many places on earth that have as many opportunities as Saskatchewan, right. uh, you know, with our commodity based structure and, you to be honest, we, we have some of the lowest GHG emissions on our commodities as anywhere in the world and, and can provide the world really what it needs right now. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's it's pretty special to be part of a province and a country, but I focus more on Saskatchewan that has this much opportunity and is I think it's really just starting to realize and share that passion and opportunity. Mm. And, and I mean, lastly, you can't replace rural morals and ethics and, yep. and grit and tenacity and, and just dealing with challenges. Yep. And, you know, we thrive on trying to find those people and, and really probably almost unlocking inside them their potential. Because yep. I think that's a little bit of one of our weaknesses in Saskatchewan. We tend to be a little humble and, and maybe don't even realize, you know, how powerful we could be. Mm. And so that part, you know, it, it's pretty exciting the, some of the groups I get to talk to and, and the feedback, you know, I, I think, I think we've got a hidden gem here that the next, I don't even want to say decade. I, I think the next century, you know, Saskatchewan's got the ability to become the powerhouse of Canada and, and, and to be well known around the world that mm-hmm. when you're, you know, you're doing a meeting in Dubai, say COP 28, et cetera, that, uh, the people are going to be coming up to you and asking you about Saskatchewan, not even necessarily Canada. 10, 20, 30 years ago, they didn't even know how to spell the name. True. They can they can draw it. It's pretty easy to draw. Um, last question for you before we jump into some speed round questions. What's next for Christian? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I mean, we got this philosophy that that we always try to hire really good people and then and then we grow. 
Uh, and I would say this year, Mother Nature reminded us that we thought we were crewed up and, but we could have had more crew. So right now we got a pretty good focus on just making sure we surround ourselves with more really good people. And then to be honest, I mean, we grow, it's what we do. And so we'll, we'll find the processes to do that. Secondly, uh, I got a bit of a dream to one day kind of have this investment arm, you know, be designed more of my retirement plan of, of a family office, a good friend and I, and, you know, we joke that we're going to kind of name it KW five squared. And so it's just our initials and, and the five crazy kids that, you know, that put up with us and the two spouses that yeah. support us and, cool. and we find it fun and it's all going to be based kind of mainly Western Canada investing. So, you know, I, I do some focus on that. And, and third, it's just this focus on some of the times I feel guilty. My guilt's probably right because yeah. I haven't put enough focus on, you know, on my wife and kids and, and my team members, spouses and kids. So spending some more time just trying to perfect that process. And I mean, the, the, the joy of chasing perfect is you're never going to get there. You're going to be continually disappointed. Right? right. But you know, hopefully, hopefully we can reach excellence. Awesome. Very cool. So before we let you go, some speed round questions for you to get to know you on a little, a little bit of a different level here. First one for you, something that Mooseman does better than anyone else. Mooseman's a little big town. So it's got 3,500 in population, but it's 80 kilometer trading radius is, uh, is between 65 and 70,000. So it acts, it acts a lot more like an Estevan or a Yorkton or a Swift Current cool. uh, and nobody knows about it. Awesome. What do you listen to in the combine? Mainly country music. Okay. Is it like a certain station that catches your eye or? I'm a, I'm a satellite radio guy because okay. my ADHD can't handle commercials. <laughs> sure. Favorite sports memory? My favorite sports memory would probably be the, uh, my son played on a local AA Adam team this year that uh, they didn't win the league, but I don't think I can explain to him the, the chemistry and the bond that this team had. Mm. I, I've been on a couple like it that, uh, it just, it just blew my mind how some 10 and 11 year olds could, could create what they created this year, this fast. And, awesome. and to be honest, it was, it was pretty cool. I was coaching with, uh, the guy that was the best man in my wedding and, you know, we've stayed in touch, but haven't stayed as close as we should have. And, and we got to coach it together and, and our two little guys got to play on the line together. And when we had no intention of that ever happening. So mm. it, it, it literally was almost like they were genetically encoded of their dad's friendship and, it was pretty special. That's pretty cool. So you do a lot of speaking engagements. How do you calm yourself seconds before you jump on that stage? Uh, sometimes it's lack of preparation. I usually, I'm pretty good at winging it. You know, yeah. I'll have slides. So I find stress usually comes if you've overprepared and think you have a script to follow. When I do presentations, I'm only talking about what I do every day. Yeah. And so it, it's no different than if I'm, you know, having a coffee or a beer with the individuals. So it's just stories I'm telling. So I, I wouldn't say that I get overly, you know, I don't get overly stressed and you know, I'll joke, my, my daughter came with me one time to a presentation and they did the, you know, especially the academics always want to have these great biographies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they did mine. And she asked me in the car after and said, dad, why don't they just say you're farm and you're funny and bald? So <laughs> if, uh, if I need something to think about, I'll just think about that for a second. Yeah. What a way to humble you. Hey. Um, so you're actually doing a presentation here at Canada's farm show on the myths of, of progressive family farm. I want to know a myth and a fact about Christian? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I would say a myth is uh, in some circles, you'll maybe hear stories that, uh, that I have an agenda, you know, and that, and that I don't necessarily care about community and that I mm. only care about our farm. Right. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is, is I think in Canada, we do a, we do a pretty piss poor job of going to coffee shops and, and taking bets on who's going to fail next. Yeah. Uh, I did some business in the U S and it's the exact opposite. So, I mean, my, 
my mentality is, is, you know, I want to see people succeed and I'm, and I'm pretty damn proud of them when they are. Right. And so the fact of the matter is, is, you know, we probably care about our community in our area and, and do things for it that, that people don't even know because yeah. we don't share it. Uh, we, we don't want any accolades for it. We just want our community to thrive just like our business. For sure. Something you've learned from coaching your kids hockey team. I would say the number one thing you learn from coaching youth sports is that get over it. You can't put your skates on and go fix the problem. <laughs> and so whether it's your kids hockey team or your business team, in a lot of cases, the worst thing you can do is jump in and fix it. Yeah. Versus finding a new way to explain uh, a strategy for them to, you know, to conquer the world themselves. Awesome. Um, last two questions. Describe the feeling we kind of talked about this of sitting in the cab with your kids. I mean, it depends on what day they're in the cab. So it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my daughter will ask me a million questions. I, uh, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, my daughter got my personality and my wife's looks. So on, on one day I'm, I'm proud of her and think, you know, that she, she might run a major company one day cause she's pretty brash and pretty open. And, and on another day, I, <clears throat> I whisper in her ear every year that she'd be a nun cause she looks too much like my wife and <laughs> oh it scares gosh. me. So, <laughs> You know, when she's in the cab, I just I just enjoy that we get to spend some time together. As I said the farm's not as exciting to her mm -hmm. uh, right now, but I mean, it wasn't that exciting to me for years too. So, you know, I just enjoy hearing about her day. And and like I said, her and I play X's and O's on the windows, and yeah. and uh, she tells me all her theories on on how the world's going to be, and her yeah. horses and her friends, and so th that would be my experiences with her. Yeah. My son is a little bit the other way, to be honest. He uh, he looks a lot like me, and and got a lot more of my wife's personality. So he's very focused and has very direct questions and wants to know how to do things perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they always say opposites attract and, and my wife and I's personalities are pretty different. And so that it, I, I really enjoy that out of my son because he really does want to learn how to run everything and do it right. And why do we do it this way? And, yeah. and he'll even, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not so much like that sometimes. So he'll even get frustrated with me to be like, dad, like you didn't, you missed four steps when you explained that to me. Right, right, right. And so it's uh, it's something I can really appreciate about him. Awesome. Last question for you. What connects us? Yeah, no, I think I think the number one thing that humanity could use right now is just to realize that, you know, the more we collaborate and work together, the more success we can have. And and I think sometimes we forget that that glue is is really what drives our our economics, it drives our policy, it drives everything. And and especially the connections our children make is going to drive the next generations. And, and I think, you know, this last decade, especially we've lost a little grasp on that and been mm. a little internally focused. And I think what connects us is, is the more we can realize that as a team, we will win way more. And as a bunch of individuals, we will think we were winning, but we're actually failing. Christian, thank you so much. You, your time is in such high demand. It's a privilege to hear your thoughts on business as well as your personal story. You've talked about how we can learn from any conversation. You've given us so many different nuggets here that I think whether you're in the agricultural industry, whether you're a business owner or just someone looking to be inspired from other, others, you've, you've given that. You've, you're way more than just a farmer. We've talked about that the entire time, just how much breadth and depth goes to your story. And Anybody that is currently in a swim lane that just does not feel right for them, there's probably a calling over there to follow your passions. You've given us so many different perspectives to go there. And um, if anybody wants to listen or hear more from Christian, you can um, check him out, christianhebert.com. Name is, your name is spelled K-R-I-S-T-J-A-N-H-E. 
B-E-R-T.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Again, thanks so much. I know your time is in demand. We've we've learned a lot from you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I mean, as I said, it's uh, I think things like these are pretty important for everybody to do because like I said, there, there'd be parts of this podcast that people really disagree with and there'd be parts that maybe that maybe light a light bulb that sometime, you know, a decade from now, you and I'll be drinking a beer and somebody will come up to us and say, hey, you know, I heard this one thing this one time. You two talked about it and yeah. it gave me a good idea. And, yeah. and if, if that happens, you know, everything we did was worth it. Sounds good. I'll meet you in Mooseman in 10 years for a beer. How about that? That'd be great. Let's do it. Well, that's it for our chat with Christian. And for this episode of the What Connects Us podcast, we'll be back in two weeks for our next episode. But if you've taken value from this conversation, please do us a favor, hit that subscribe or follow button, leave a review of the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and share the podcast with a friend or on social media. It makes a huge difference for us and helps us continue to tell these stories. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our season finale. Let's connect then.